concept of objective truth is under assault. People are rejecting facts for feelings. How can we restore truth and reason back to prominence? I'm Joshua Miller, and welcome to Think Critical. Due to us recording at home this week, audio quality may dip at times. Thank you for your patience and for listening to Think Critical. Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston College and an instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School. He has taught philosophy, specifically philosophy of science, at numerous teaching institutions. He has written numerous fiction and non-fiction bestsellers on ethics and combating scientific denial. So hello, uh, Dr. McIntyre. Welcome to Think Critical. Thank you. I enjoy being on your program. Um, so my first question for you is, so you are, um, you spend a lot of your, you know, your efforts into documenting the phenomenon known as post-truth which is, uh, you say, is an environment sort of where the concept of objective truth has been modeled by politicians and by certain people in academia. Um, so as best you can, what, what was the best way you would describe post-truth as a concept to like the layman? I think of post-truth as the political subordination of reality. So post-truth is not simply lying. It's not spin doctoring it's not uh you know any of the other possible ways that you could think of to disrespect truth post-truth is when somebody um for political purposes uh wants to say something that isn't true because they wish that it were true but the point of it isn't to convince you the point of it is that by saying whatever it is that they wish were true, they're imposing a reality on you. That is, they're not even showing you the respect to try to convince you that a false thing is true. They're maybe saying something that you know is untrue, but they're showing how much power they have over you and disrespecting you by just telling you what it is, as if to say there's... I'm going to say this is true. There's nothing you can do about it. So, so uh, sort of, how do we get to this environment of post-truth? Like, what are what were like the beginnings and origins of this phenomenon? Has it always been around, or is it like why is it you know started to become more prevalent in recent years? Well, you might say that this phenomenon has been around for a long time. Um, political leaders have always found it expedient to 
lie and know that they could get away with it. Say, um, you know, way back in the uh, Soviet era, back in uh, the, you know, Lenin and Stalin days, they had the, sometimes they would have the trappings of democracy. They would pretend that things were on the up and up, even when they weren't, because it served their purpose. Um, I mean, you could trace this back to Nero, back to Caesar. I mean, it, it goes it goes back a long way. What's new about it, the reason that the word post-truth uh, came into fashion is because what's different now is that we've got social media and we've got the Internet. And it used to be that propaganda or disinformation could only go so far. But now we're the information stream is polluted. Now lies can just uh, be heard around the world almost as soon as the liar is saying them. And that has a, an especially bad effect because there are going to be people who are convinced by it and will amplify the message. And that just makes it worse. Um, if you're If you're trying to rule somebody, if you're trying to be an autocrat, or an authoritarian say, um, it's very useful to have a propaganda channel in which you can just spread you know, your information. Uh, in some societies, they only have one TV channel, one radio channel. And you know, that's how they get their message out. And how do you know what's true? Because you're only hearing what the government tells you. In a world in which there are so many different media outlets, uh, post-truth, uh, the, the tactic that the would-be authoritarian has to use um, is to just uh, pollute the information stream so that people really become cynical and they can't tell what's true and what isn't, so that some people will say, well, you know, this leader, um, he sounds uh, effective, he sounds confident, so I'll just, I'll believe him. So it's like it's more insidious because it's more organic and it's more subtle than, than rather than just like the, the government passing it down directly from the government for the government channels. It's like sort of born out of actors which are spread all around and they look like everybody else, right? Well, yes, it, it, it reinforces it. I mean, you know, you had fake news. You had fake news in the French Revolution. People used to be very cynical about the news. You know, what, what they heard, they just, they expected, oh, well, the person paying for the newspaper, they're telling, they're not telling me what really happened. They're telling me what they wish happened. People didn't expect objectivity. And, you know, in an environment like that, where you're skeptical, maybe you get, you want then you're hungry for information from more than one source. Um, the thing that I've noticed happening recently is that, as I said, the information stream is so polluted that people can go out there and actively look for information that reinforces what they already want to believe. That's, that's the, I think, the most dangerous thing and this precursor of post-truth. We've all got this built-in cognitive bias to want certain things to be true yeah, so speaking of cognitive bias do you think that this sort of cognitive bias has like become more pronounced in recent years that people are becoming some more disaffected to the concept of of you know an objective truth or do you think that this cognitive bias is sort of just remain the same and because of other factors we're seeing more post-truth 
know, cognitive bias has been with us for hundreds of thousands of years. It's part of our evolutionary history. So I don't think the confirmation bias itself is worse. I think that our ability to indulge it is worse. Um, the, there's a book by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow, and he talks about the hundreds of different cognitive biases that we have. A good example is one called confirmation bias. We're more likely to seek out information that backs up what we already want to believe to be true. So maybe we'll cherry pick facts to try to make it sound like the thing that we want to be true is true. Well, that's especially dangerous when we can go on the internet and find thousands of other people who agree with us. Uh, th there are the, the widespread availability of seems factual that backs up our cognitive biases. That's what's so dangerous. People used to deny that we went to the moon, but you'd never met anybody who felt that way because where were they? Now you can find a whole group of people, a whole community, probably more than one on the internet who deny that we've been to the moon. And they've got faked videotape and they've got conspiracy theories and they've got all sorts of other things that you can tap into which feeds your pre-existing biases so really what happened is the internet uh, took advantage of the pre-existing cognitive bias and the you know just the the, the human tendency to for gullibility and made it much worse this human flaw of cognitive bias uh, it's just something we're going to be forced to live with or is there a way this week we can sort of combat it out of ourselves become like better people and you know better thinkers well we've all got cognitive bias that doesn't mean we have to be ruled by it uh we've all got instincts but you know maybe i've got an instinct to uh, murder my rival but I don't do it because I live in a society in which I've been socialized and trained not to do it. In the same way, we've all got cognitive biases, but we can educate ourselves about how to, to combat them. Um, there are, uh, there was a, a teacher, I talked about this in my book, Post Truth, there was a teacher in California named Scott Bedley who invented something he called the fake news game where he taught his fifth grade class how to identify something that was fake news. He gave them a rubric. There are things that we can do to help ourselves to become more skeptical, to help ourselves you know, not be taken in. Um, so yes, there are things that we can do to try to combat it. But no, there aren't ways to get rid of cognitive bias. I mean, even scientists have cognitive bias. You know, think of a scientist who's just invented a theory. Well, you know, you could claim, well, scientists are supposed to be objective. Well, I'm pretty sure that scientist wants his or her theory to be true and might even go out there looking for information to show that it's true. So, that's a very bad thing to do in science. The reason they don't get away with it in science is because it's a community of critical thinkers who will check up, uh, look at the testing, look at the data, and look at the evidence, and figure out whether the theory makes any sense or not. That's what we need more of, this ability not only to check ourselves, but to check other people. So um, 
you were talking earlier about social media. Um, so why do you think that in this you know, situation, like the, a lot of the alternative media sources that we, we see nowadays, what makes them particularly susceptible to, uh, to twisting the truth? Like, is it that there's just more of them or do they have like less oversight? Well, there are a couple of things going on here. One is that some media sites exist simply to lie. They, they intentionally lie. They have an agenda. You know, they know exactly what they want you to think, and that's the message that they give you, hoping that you'll be gullible enough to believe it, so, which is propaganda. So that's one thing that's going on. At another level, there is, I guess there's the, there are the provocateurs the people who are not very careful, the people who know what's clickbait, um, who know the sexy story or the sexy headline that they want you to click on. So they just don't have uh, standards. Maybe they're not intentionally trying to lie, but it's a sort of willful ignorance where they're not bothering very hard. Uh, Another problem going on is simply lack of editing. Um, if a news source doesn't have very much money uh, to you know, hire enough editors to really do you know, good investigative journalism, maybe other things will slip through. Then if they're good journalists, they'll you know, correct it the next, uh, the next time. Journalists sometimes uh, make mistakes. But there are, these, there are journalistic values about not reporting something until you've had it confirmed by two different sources. Those are the uh, backbone of good journalism. Not every news uh, right or left uh, abides by that. So uh, do you think the decline of, like, traditional, trustable media is permanent? I know that uh, even some major papers like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal have been running into issues of journalistic integrity lately. The New York Times, for example, doxing Scott Alexander of the Slate Star Codex, or the Wall Street Journal New York Times opinion section is being full of uh, very off-putting um, you know, writers, do you think that the decline of, of trustful media is permanent or do you think that those, the uh, journalistic standards are going to come back into force? Well, it's a long, complicated story that I'm not sure I have time to tell. I did tell it uh, in, in my book, Post-Truth. I'll give you the bullet version. Uh, objectivity in media is really not that old. Uh, the expectation of objectivity in media. Most Newspapers, most media sources uh, were biased and known to be biased for you know most of human history. It was really the invention of the telegraph that started uh, the push for objectivity because different newspapers had their different biases, but they needed the straight news in order to know what was happening, and then they biased it. And when they were all news through the telegraph, that you know started the um, for for more objective. Yeah. Um, is it permanent? Um, I I mean I hope not. Um, you know the the uh, editorials. Remember that news outlets have the news division and then they have the editorial division. They have op-ed. Uh, you know uh, um, op-eds are are not news. They're opinion. Okay. Um, the, you know, editorials are opinion. So, you know, people have to read the newspaper with 
that in mind. But investigative journalism, uh, I mean, I, I think that's going to survive. I think people have to be willing to pay for it. I mean, uh, news is not uh, people should be willing to pay for the description to the New York Times and other places that have good investigative journalism. If that's what they believe in, they should be willing to support it. I think the problem is that um, we take objectivity and good journalistic standards for granted and uh, are not willing to pay for them. Uh, and if, if we want those institutions to survive, we need to support them. Otherwise, all we're going to have left is opinion. And even if it's opinion that we agree with, that's dangerous. Um, is there you think there's any way to instill a new sense of, of the importance of truth within the, our media sources and within alternative and social media sources? Um how to instill its importance. I mean, there are some people who don't want it to be important. There are some media sources that know what the truth is, but they lie. And they do it on purpose because they have an agenda. So I think that really the, the way out of this is, well, it, it's, as I said, for people to vote with their dollars or you know, to, to figure out when there is a violation of good journalistic practice and call them on it. What's going on at Facebook right now is a good example. Um, once Mark Zuckerberg came forward and said, well, you know, I'm not going to censor political speech. The, you know, the political politicians can put up whatever ads they want and we're not going to censor them. Well, what happened? All of a sudden there were a bunch of uh, companies that said, well, fine, we're going to pull our advertising from you. And all of a sudden, He's beginning to say, well, now this looks a little more important than I thought. And they're now putting disclaimers on um, some of the uh, uh, stories, uh, some of the ads that they're putting in Facebook. Facebook needs to wake up to the fact that they're a news outlet. OK, they're they, you know, right now there's I forget the law, but they they can't be sued for the content on Facebook because they're aggregating the news. They're not creating it. Um, they're, so they, they've, been, they've been shielded from responsibility for an awfully long time now for what they report. I think that there is beginning to be more accountability for Facebook, for Twitter, for other places that are effectively news outlets these days. Though I think it's kind of risky um, to take away the protections which Facebook and you know and Reddit or all those social media sites have in terms of content that's posted on them because I think there's also a risk that if you give the government a more oversight into those sites, then it, the government's not always going to be a you know a a, a fair and you know, good institution and it, any sort of control over a media outlet itself mm -hmm. would probably be. Yeah, I agree. Will probably lead to I, I agree. I mean, we 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 don't, and and that's not really what I'm recommending. I'm not saying that we need government uh, control of Facebook any more than we need government control over the New York Times or NBC News. Um, what I'm saying is that people need to wake up to the uh, outlets where they're uh, being uh, uh, fed fake stories and demand better. They can vote with their dollars, either advertisers or subscriptions. Um, if, if you bought the New York Times and 
it was no longer the New York Times. It was the New York Times and the National Enquirer all mixed together. You'd cancel your subscription. That's what people are doing now with Facebook. It doesn't require government control. It requires people being awake to the fact that um, the, some of the news aggregators are not uh, being objective. Uh, worse, worse than that, they're, they're positively uh, uh, causing harm in some cases. Um, I think that there are, there are cases uh, where you could argue where there, you know, there do need to be tighter standards than that. Um, even Facebook recognizes that they um, they have an a, an office. They have a team that scrubs Facebook for pornography, for beheadings, for acts of terrorism. Um, you don't see those on Facebook because they scrub for that. So they've decided that those things are important enough that they don't want it getting through their newsfeed. They could do the same thing for lying. You know, for politicians lying, they could do the same thing when, um, you know, in any time something is not in the public interest. We're in a pandemic now. When a politician runs an ad that says uh, the coronavirus is going to go away magically, you don't need to wear a mask. It's harmful information that could kill people. They could put a warning on that. Um, so. I know that during the presidential campaign, Andrew Yang proposed a like a third party independent ombudsman to to essentially monitor uh, like the phenomenon of fake news. Is that a, a viable thing you can see? Like like for example, the Federal Reserve right now is technically an independent organization. Would you see something like a like an independent um, like third party NGO that could have authority to monitor sites? Would that be a viable solution? Who's monitoring the monitors, right? And and the, you will always have people squawking about the objectivity of the people who uh, who are doing that. Look, right now we've got the Congressional Budget Office. The CBO is nonpartisan. Their job is to give Congress numbers on any proposal that they come up with. What will this cost? And you hear squawking. Uh, from politicians that, oh, this is biased, they're giving us the wrong numbers. So even something like that, um, you, you know, you've, you've got people complaining. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not a good idea. It doesn't mean that we don't need a CBO because people are going to complain about the CBO. I guess I'd have to think more about Yang's proposal of, a, you know, exactly how this would happen. And again, back to your point, how would it be mandated? How, would it would that be a government ombudsman who would decide who the ombudsman was when he or she was being objective how they could be fired what their job requirements were um, I think that a, a much more positive way to do it is what's happening right now people are uh, leaving Facebook the number of corporate corporations have decided to pull all of their advertising from Facebook finally got their attention um so i'm gonna just ask you right now what are your like sort of favorite examples of a post-truth phenomenon like what what is what you identify yeah. as being those important ones okay uh probably the purest example that i can think of is one of the 
coldest ones back during the, uh, just after the 2016 election, during Trump's inauguration, when he said that he had the largest inauguration crowd in history. There's an example of post-truth. Anybody with two eyes could see from the pictures, could, you know, look at the evidence about subway ridership or, you know, the National Park Service, whatever you wanted, that that was untrue. But Trump wanted his spokesman to say it anyway, because it was just shot across the bow. He was saying, I am powerful. I can lie. And there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe he did get certain people to agree with it. More importantly, he got people not to disagree with it. Okay. That is, whether they actually thought so or not, at the time, there were some stunning number, like 20 or 30 percent of people who looked at those pictures said that that claim was true. Well, you know, that kind of partisanship is uh, is very toxic. It's the political subordination of reality. Another example is the path of Hurricane Dorian, when President Trump took out a map and drew with a magic marker uh, that Alabama was going to be threatened on a National Weather Service map. Again, laughable, ridiculous, um, but it was the political subordination of reality. He was saying, here's what reality says. I don't like it. Here's what I wish it said. Now, here it is. Now, the two examples I've used there are both from Trump. He, he didn't invent post-truth, but he has given us some of the most egregious examples of it. Yeah, um, uh, Trump is, I, like I like to say, he's a post-policy president. It's everything which he does is just to make himself feel better, to be honest. He's, he's very childlike. Um, and I think his actions have really emboldened a lot of people on the farther left, like uh, – People further like laughter further right. Uh, further right, I think, has always like at least post Mitt Romney has been super invigorated to just lie completely. I've never seen a single true statement from a reactionary because that they exist to cons conserve what they want. But I think the further left has been reinvigorated by Trump too. People like uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, her, uh, his campaign manager, who constantly lied um, for no reason basically about about programs which happened in Venezuela and the effects of economic decisions made all across Southeast Asia just to basically make herself feel better because she's, she's a, she was a full-blown authoritarian socialist. I, I don't know why he hired her. I, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with this, um, but one thing that's important, this is important in, the, uh, in this whole topic and this whole debate, a lie is something that's intentionally false. So if the person actually believes it, then what do you say? It's okay. kind of like, like now, double think. Well, yes, but, but, but here, here's something, here's a real brain breaker. One of our cognitive biases is the repetition effect. If we hear something over and over again, we're more likely to believe that it's true. And social psychologists have shown that that's true, even if the first time we heard it, we know it's a lie, but the more often we hear it, the more likely we are to believe that it's true, even if it's the same message that we've already heard over and over. And I wonder if that might be true, even if we're the one telling the lie. That is, if you say something that's wrong, and then 
can you delude yourself? Um, I read a book one time by uh, Robert Trivers called The Folly of Fools, in which he's talking about this kind of self-delusion, and he says that the easiest way to fool others is first to fool yourself. And so I wonder if there's some point at which people begin to believe their own propaganda. It doesn't make it better, but it it does it does throw a curveball in there, right? Um, way, way back, way, way back, uh, uh, Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, said at one point, if you tell a story five times, then it's true. So, you know, <laughs> even if you're making it up, you repeat it, and then you begin to believe it. And, oh, I thought that was true because I've been telling the story all these years. So when you accuse somebody of lying, what you're saying is they're saying something false and they know that it's false. That's I think that's why so many newspapers hesitated at first to make the claim that Trump was lying because they how do you verify that he knew that it was false over time? It was apparent, and now what's he up to? Seventeen thousand lies. Yeah, he, it's a kind of like an echo chamber effect, right? Like, um, I know in online spaces, it, radicals both left and right, they'll just say they, they somebody says something there. It doesn't matter if they verified it or not. If because if they're a member of the community, that people are going to repeat the same thing, just be a member of the community. But also because, and it makes it very dangerous to debate against because they've sort of wrap themselves so hard in their identity that they can't separate any position made by their community with their own identity so they can't ver they can't check themselves yeah you, you ha and you have to do that whether you no matter what your political identity i mean people who say things like um you know, we have enough nuclear weapons to blow up the world a thousand times. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I've heard people say that, but, you know, is is that actually true and what does that mean? Or, you know, a handgun in the home is 500 times more likely to kill the person who's using it than an intruder. Uh, is is that true? Uh, I've, I've seen statistics which uh, dispute that. Um, you know, th so there are some people, sometimes people have just loose talk uh, uh, about things like that. Things that um, look here, here's an even more here's a more contemporary one. Um, is climate change an existential threat to humanity? That is, if we don't do something about climate change, will it wipe out the human race? Um, that is the story that you hear in the mainstream media. I'm not sure that it's true. Now, I think that climate change is a horrible thing, and it, it, it will have devastating consequences and lead to millions of deaths and untold suffering. And I'm, I'm writing a chapter in a book right now on it. I think that climate change should be the number one item on uh, uh, you know, the next president's agenda because it, it is you know, a, a horrific threat to humanity. But is it actually true that it will erase human life from this planet? I I don't know if that's true. Yeah, like a lot of policy wonks, which I've talked to, have actually said like the CCP, the Chinese government, is probably a bigger threat to humanity's survival and to the good of the human world. 
uh, than climate change is even like they, like a lot of I think there's there a lot of people got caught up in the rhetoric back when that devastating UN report came out and then Greta Thunberg made her speeches at the UN uh, about how bad climate change was going to be when I've, a lot of policy guys have been saying well I think that China or potential for a second Great Depression might be even more pressing concerns especially with you know China having almost no care for other nations' well-being at a point where they they've aggressed upon almost all their neighbors at this point. Well, and don't forget the fact that China is the number one polluter as well. Chinese coal is by far the the main source of greenhouse gas emissions. It's something like 14%. So Chinese coal, just that, is 14% of greenhouse gas uh, in the world. It's, uh, it's, it's a, terrible. So what are some consequences of post-truth and how can we fight those consequences and how can we fight post-truth itself? I think that one of the most important ways to fight post-truth is to fight it in ourselves. That is to recognize that we all have cognitive biases. We all hope that certain things are true. Uh, You know, we all have the tendency to want to believe what we want to believe and we have to be as hard on our own beliefs as we are on other people's beliefs if we're going to put a premium on truth that means just in the same way that a scientist does we have to verify we have to check whether the things that we're saying are true or not Um, other things that we can do um, we can as i said support Uh, media outlets that are practicing good investigative journalism, you know, put put a premium, show the premium that we put on truth telling by doing that. Stand up for science, Um, you know, go go to um, protest. I went to the the March for Science. It was a it was a very uh, thrilling thing. There were in 600 cities around the world. Um, there were, you know, people marching for science, um, resistance, pushing back against people who are using post-truth for political purposes, which, which is the point, uh, I think, is, is effective. Um, the, the real danger of post-truth is not that you're going to believe a lie. It's that you're going to become so cynical that you don't care what's true and what's false anymore. And in an environment like that, you are ripe for manipulation. That's why autocrats and authoritarians use post-truth as a tactic, because it is extremely effective. If you can control what the information stream and you can control what people believe, then you can control uh, the people, you can control the population. It is... Uh, If you read Hannah Arendt, the great Holocaust historian, um, she talks about this. She talks about how authoritarians use propaganda, how they use their control over information um, to control the population. That is the, the thing that I'm the most worried about right now, because I'm afraid that post truth leads to authoritarian rule. So, um, and by the way, I think there's a nexus here between things like climate change and anti-vax and all of the other science and corona uh, hoaxers, 
all of the science denial that's going on right now, I think there's a link between that and post-truth because I think that post-truth, at least one of the most important roots of it, and again, I talk about this in my book, is science denial. Science denial, um, modern science denial started in the 1950s when the cigarette companies banded together to start a public relations campaign to fight against the science, which said that there was a causal link between cigarette smoking and cancer. And guess what? They were successful. For the next 40 years, they got people to doubt it. They said, well, it hasn't been proven yet, which, of course, nothing can be proven in science. And Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway tell this story in their book called Merchants of Doubt, how this created the blueprint for science denial that was then followed for the next 60 years and was used for climate change denial. And then what happened was I think that a bunch of right-wing politicos in the United States and, and England and elsewhere said, wow, this is a very effective tool. If you can use this to deny climate change, you can use it to deny anything. So why not how many people are at an inauguration? Um, whether or not coronavirus is going to disappear overnight, uh, what the path is of a hurricane, and all of the other lies that politicians have told. It's all from the same playbook. Um, one of the most insidious things that's, that's happened in the Trump presidency is that we've done nothing about climate change. Nothing. Uh, that, you know, as, as horrible as all of the other things are that have happened, the, the human suffering, the, just the things I can't even list. There's so many of them. Uh, the one that's going to be with us the longest is three and a half to four years of inaction on climate change. That could lead to millions more deaths. It may not wipe us out as a species. Of course, we don't know that. We don't know that it will. We don't know that it won't. But it, it will lead to millions more deaths and untold suffering if we don't do something about climate change. And, and to make matters worse, he sucks up to the regimes which cause so much of the pollution, right? So, uh, yes. so here's my question, um, my last sort of question. Why are reasoning skills so important for a healthy democracy? And uh, how can we sort of learn better critical thinking skills to um, better our worldview? Um, it's a great question, and I think that philosophy is the answer. Um, I wish that they taught critical reasoning skills in elementary school. If you look at the data on this, it shows that kids who learn logic – kids who learn philosophy, ethics, you know, any piece of it early on, who learn to say, what if? Karl Popper, you know, who, right? Yeah, who, who learn to be skeptics. They, they should teach that stuff early on. I taught a, a logic module to fifth graders one time, and they loved it. They went insane over logic. Uh, but they don't teach that until college. Uh, I think that there are, there's an institute in Montclair, New Jersey called uh, Institute of Philosophy for Children. There are ways to teach philosophy at a much younger age. Kids are ready for it. Kids are born philosophers. They always want to know what if and why. They're asking all the questions that Socrates asked. 
And then people say, oh, we don't know the answer to that, which is, you know, okay, Socrates started there. But then they are encouraged to shut up and stop asking the questions. Why are they encouraged to do that? If we had more kids uh, thinking about these kind of things, I think we'd be better off. People are always complaining these days, people my age at the very end of the baby boom about young people. I think young people are going to save us. I think that young people are so skeptical and so questioning and so awake to what's going on these days that uh, change is going to come. I hope it comes fast enough, but that's uh, that's something that I think is uh, is really important. Uh, so, like, so how do we help the logically challenged? Yeah, how, how do we how do we help them? I mean, one thing to do is to. Um, is for more philosophers to engage with the general public. This is what I do now. This is, I'm writing. There are other people out there. Uh, I've got a friend named John Haber who's got a book out called Critical Thinking. Same series my book's in with the MIT Press and Essential Knowledge series. His book just came out. It ought to be widely read. Um, he wrote another book earlier on called Critical Voter, How to Apply Critical Thinking Skills to Elections. Um, I've got another friend, uh, Andrew Norman, uh, who lives in Pittsburgh. He's also a, what they call these days a public philosopher, writing a very important book on um, uh, the, you know, the defense of, uh, of reasoning skills uh, in this day and age. So there are works like this out there. Um, I think that philosophers need to aspire to reach a larger audience to get people excited about philosophy. But I think people need to also read those books. I'm not trying to be self-serving here uh, and just sell more of my book. The reason I'm writing the books that I'm writing is because I think that it's so important for us to reach a larger audience to think about this. When when you've got um, uh, uh, Senator Inhofe from Oklahoma going into the Senate chamber holding a snowball as uh, an alleged refutation of climate change. That is so ignorant. That, 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 that's such a misunderstanding, not only of the difference between climate and weather, but of what it means to refute something. Again, Karl Popper. We, 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 need, we need critical thinkers. We need people to understand what it means to reason. Look at Congress. They're not even talking to each other these days. I mean, that's another thing that we can do to overcome post-truth. I defy you to find a political speech these days where there aren't empty seats behind them. And, and this isn't just because of coronavirus. This has been going on for a long time. People in Congress do not talk to one another anymore. They go across the street to their other offices and they dial for dollars, the, the, the money, uh, you know, for the, for the money for their campaigns. We need to talk to one another again. We need to engage with one another and um, question one another. I'll say one last thing. on. There was a book by uh, Cass Sunstein called Infotopia, in which he talked about the fact that when when you got people, they reasoned better than when they were individuals. You could give a group a problem, and the group would solve it where any individual in the group couldn't, which meant that they weren't just deferring to the smartest person in the room. It meant that the group got smarter by having the ability to question one another. You ever watch the show, um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? 
ask the audience. That's the best lifeline you've because there is wisdom in crowds. Yeah, and that's of course uh, engaging people w- with reasoning skills is of course the goal of our podcast here at Think Critical. Um, Good for you. So, yeah. thank you, Dr. McIntyre. I'm sure this has been very enlightening for our listeners. Thank you. I appreciated you having me uh, on the call, and please say hello to your family for me. Don't forget to tune in Friday to listen to our conversation with Dr. Kumar Shrikumar about the future of our economy. And thank you, as always, for listening to Think Critical.